Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez. And gosh, we are now up to episode 137, the first episode of brand new year, 2024. And couldn't have a better guest probably to start the year than Michael Samen. Uh, Michael, welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to uh, finally get a chance to chat. <laughs> yeah. So Michael and I were supposed to chat at the Miami Book Fair about right. almost two months ago in, in November. Uh, I want to thank our friends at the Miami Book Fair for connecting us for an interview. Unfortunately, Michael was sick and couldn't make it that day. But uh, thank you for being so kind to reschedule the interview for today. Uh, so hopefully, actually, we probably have a little bit more time now. So this is great. That's right. That's uh, right. No, this is great. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're at those book fairs, you got to run oh, from yeah. one interview to the next one, uh, one, one speaking thing to the next. So let me properly introduce Michael to everybody. First of all, he's got this great new book called App Kid uh, Mike, by Michael Saban. It, the subtitle is... Um, how a child of immigrants grabbed a piece of the American dream. So I actually was able to finish the entire book as well before our interview. So it's a really fantastic read. Uh, Michael is the son of Peruvian and Bolivian immigrants born and raised in Miami. By the way, we have that in common. I was born in Miami, raised in Broward though. Um, <laughs> Michael is best known for creating chart topping apps as a teen, including uh, the word game four snaps. Uh, he caught the attention of Mark Zuckerberg and was invited to apply for an internship at Facebook, which he achieved the summer after he finished high school. Um, he also played a pivotal role in creating Instagram stories. At age 21, he moved to Google, where he became a product manager and a founder in residence. And he was once described by CNET and Espanol as one of the 20 most influential Latinos in tech. In 2019, was uh, Forbes named him a 30 under 30 in consumer technology. And now he splits time between, well, it used to be Miami and Silicon Valley, but I just found out it's Miami and the broader New York area in Connecticut. And, um, and he is an agent of innovation in the social media space. So, Michael, we've got a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is uh, it's, it's been a pretty crazy journey for me. Um, and it's unreal to just see how quickly things go and how quickly things change and in, in not only in tech, but in the opportunities and the spaces and products and even in the things that I end up working on. It's, um, it's pretty nuts. <laughs> yeah. So all of these things that you've achieved and, and what are you about 27 years old now? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <I'm> so, old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're very young, especially with that kind of resume. Um, and again, I want to thank our friends at the Miami book fair for connecting us. Um, and, you know, like I said, your book, App Kid, really great, uh, fantastic book about, you know, kind of goes through your entire life. Um, and I love how you also are very kind of honest and open with all the challenges you faced along the way. Um, despite the fact you were, as a teen, uh, really uh, a sensation, a teen sensation in the coding arena. Um, so, again, I really go back to the subtitle of your book, How a Child of Immigrants grabbed a piece of the American dream. You and I both have that in common. Your your uh, parents are from Peru and Bolivia. My dad, uh, I'm a child of, a, of an immigrant. My dad is from Cuba. Um, but, you know, speaking of the American dream, Michael, um, given how much you've packed in these first 27 years and seeing the opportunities and struggles that your parents had um, and then how 
people in your generation are also, you know, there's challenges, there's opportunities, but there's also been a lot of, uh, you know, struggles as well. What can you tell us about the American dream? Is it still alive? I would say so. I mean, I would say that the internet kind of changed the entire definition of, of like, uh, what it means to even get an education these days and, and be able to seek out those opportunities and build out um, that kind of American dream. I, I think what's interesting in, in particular about the book that when I started writing it, I was 21. It took three years to get through writing the book. And when I started writing it, I had one idea of who I was and what I was building and what was possible. And through the years as I started remembering all of the different things that took place and how I was able to land at these different companies and building these different products at those ages, I started kind of reflecting on it and seeing it from different perspectives. And I, I do think it's a lot, a lot more challenging than people think in some ways to achieve success in the US. But I also think it's a lot easier to do in other ways that people, you know, assume might not be as, uh, um, as open to uh, to change as most might think, um, I, and so I think there's there's different elements to the American dream and achieving it that are maybe not exactly uh, aligned with public perception, both in ways that make it easier and ways that make it harder. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, well, that's great. Well, you know, in this book, I I found you packed a lot of wisdom into it. It was hard to believe a 27 or maybe 24 year old at the time, you know, wrote this book. Um, but you, um, I really want to go through some, a few of the lines that you deliver in here, because I think you really give some great advice and, and, you know, based on some of the experiences you've had, you said at one point you realized my parents still refused to see that the American dream they'd fallen in love with as young immigrants didn't come with a guarantee. So what is important about the, that statement for people, especially aspiring, aspiring, or even, um, successful entrepreneurs who are listening to this, uh, what is what is important for them to get from that lesson? I think my parents came with this notion that like the U.S. is filled with opportunity, and that like if if they just push hard enough, they can land on it, and once they have it, they can keep it. Um, the the key I think here at, at the end of that is once you have it, you don't necessarily keep it. Uh, that that's one of those things that I think I I learned over the years too. When when my parents first started out their uh, small uh, chicken restaurant in Miami, it was going great and they loved it. And the American financial system encouraged them to get credit cards and uh, and to take out loans and to upgrade things and to keep going for more. And uh, the country is very well equipped at promoting upgrades and loans and credit cards to people who see newfound success. And I think that opportunity and the, and, you know, the, the shininess of the, the possibilities of growing so quickly uh, lead a lot of people into just acquiring that debt, acquiring those loans. And over time, without realizing it, kind of putting themselves in a bit of a, of a, uh, uh, you know, of a, of a knot um, that eventually they, they don't realize can catch up to them. And, and that essentially, I think, is, is one of those things. That it's not a guarantee. Um, just because one works hard and just because one um, achieves a certain success does not mean that you get to keep it. And so I, I tend to be very conservative 
uh, with my approach to saving money and spending it. And even when it comes to raising funds for startups and things like that, because you never know when the good times uh, will no longer be around. And in the U.S. economy and the way that the markets work here, it's it's an up and down every few years. You, you never really know what's going to hit. And having that type of like mindset for diversification and having plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E, and, and continuously having those in mind as you grow, it I think is pretty important. And And I mean, to simplify all of that, I would just say it's about keeping doors open and opening new ones every day, no matter how many doors you already have open. Um, and leaving them open and continuously growing those relationships because there's always going to be a time when one of those doors fails and you need to have a backup. So, so for me, it's always been about stability. Clearly, growing up in my parents, you know, uh, with my parents having had some early success with their restaurant and then losing it all and eviction and so on, like the up and down for me as a kid kind of retrained me to think in the most, um, conservative of ways when it comes to all that stuff. And and I do think when it comes to like the American dream and it not being certain either is and not being that guarantee is like, even for those who do try hard, you're not guaranteed at success. Um, America won't just give you the success. And and what's funny about this is like, I I think there are like a lot of ways in which we see stories of successes that showcase somebody um, at the top and just, and, and people talking about them as being just, oh, they just, they moved to America and there you go. They had it, you know, it was done. And, and the truth is that it's a lot harder than that. Um, I sure I had my engineering uh, passions and I was obsessed with coding, but I wasn't that great at it. And even then um, in order to succeed, I, I had to email a bunch of people constantly begging people to write and talk about my apps, hoping that someone would take a look at something I was building. And as I would go through it, just really almost desperately trying to keep my products alive. Um, and, and that kind of like intense work, um, I, I think uh, without it, I wouldn't have been able to succeed. So yes, the U.S. offers the opportunity, but definitely not guaranteed. And, and it's definitely not permanent. Yeah, and you, you brought up some things there as well regarding um, the type of economy, you know, that we're, we're moving into, you know, we've moved into the internet economy, we may be moving into a more automated AI driven economy as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but what I find interesting about your parents story, they didn't just I mean, so many people come here to the United States as immigrants, and they do find a lot of opportunity. But a lot of times they are working for other people, and they may have done that. But they also started they were entrepreneurs themselves, right? Like you that's said, right. they were running a restaurant. Um, and so that's that's really neat. But and they they were running what seemed to be, from what I gather from the story in your book, a pretty successful restaurant. Yes. Until the Great Recession happened in that 2006, 2010 period. Yes. And then, like a lot of people, they lost a lot. Uh, also, they probably had, you know, uh, a, you know, some things invested in real estate that was over overinflated, all, all these sorts of things. Meanwhile, you're like 13 years old at the time. You're you you go on the internet, you Google how to code, you figure out how to code, you start creating apps, you start bringing in money, more money than your parents <laughs> were bringing in for themselves, and you're like 13 years old. I mean, it's just, just like a crazy <laughs> story. But to me, it's also emblematic of what is going on in America, like where the challenges were in the economy of the past, 
you know, a lot of people are still thinking, especially people, maybe your parents' age, uh, that uh, basically they were trained in a certain way. They 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 lived in a in a world that was going in a certain direction, and then boom, the internet comes along and shifts the whole dynamic, disrupts the whole dynamic. Now, there's great, you know, there's great things that come out of disruption, but there's also a lot of challenging things for a lot of other people that, uh, so you're kind of, you know, your family alone, it's like kind of like it goes right through the family in terms of the things that were lost, but the things that were gained through the opportunities that you saw. So what do you think kind of this can tell us about the shift in the current economy and how it's Mm. impacting the American dream? Well, I, I mean, it's it's interesting because, yeah, the, my, my family, my story is a perfect example of that shift of the Internet really breaking through the entire economy, the finances, the livelihood uh, that we depended on right through the middle of my upbringing. And, um, it, yeah, that's definitely the case. Uh, but I will say I, I think we're going through another similar shift now. Um, and I, I remember when ChatGPT first came out, I called my mom about it and I told her, I was like, do you remember when I, uh, told you when I was what, 11, 10 years old and I saw the Steve Jobs presentation for the iPhone and I asked her, do you remember when I told you that this was going to change everything and that the world will never be the same and this and that and this and that? And she was like, uh, yes, kind of all worried. Right. Um, I was like, well, um. Uh, a new product came along called ChatGPT that um, is going to do the same thing. Uh, and it's going to do it again. And, and this is where she asked me, okay, so what's the business opportunity? What's the, what's the new like entrepreneurial thing you're going to do in that space? And I told her, this time, I don't know. <laughs> I said, last time I knew I was a kid. I was, you know, seeped in the, the youngest generation's culture around how the iPhone was going to go. And this time, I genuinely have no idea, I told her. And, and, and I told her I have to spend time thinking about it, understanding the product, and, and so on. And, and, and yeah, so I agree with you. I think, I think in a similar way, we're going through another step now um, that is that kind of shift. Um, but then again, I think it, just like before, it is so new and so different that those who are not children in this era have to do a little bit more work to understand exactly how it's going to affect the economy. And it's weird to say that the children are probably the most informed and most capable of understanding where this is headed. Um, But given the way that technology works and given the way that I think human brains develop at a younger age, those formative years are going to give them the natural intuition to understand where this economy is going, that those of us who grew up in the prior era are going to have to learn a lot harder and spend a lot more time trying to understand before we can make any of those predictions. So, so maybe being 27 is actually old now, right? For the yes. new economy. <laughs> oh, I definitely think so. I mean, like, I, and, and I don't think it's like super ancient, but I definitely think it's like, it's a lot harder in the same way that learning a new language um, is a lot harder at 27 than it would be to learn it at eight or nine years old. Um, I, I really do think that there's different periods in some someone's life that can help you kind of learn uh, some of these new things. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't. It just means it takes a lot more work. Um, and I mean, I don't know. I have fun with it. So for me, it's like I spend all day on it. But <laughs> it definitely is much more of a challenge. Yeah, for sure. Well, a lot of people are trying to learn it and adapt it and maybe try to 10x themselves. Uh, on a previous podcast, uh, I had on uh, Parker Rex. 
I want to say it was around episode 130 or something. I can't remember, but uh, he is working on, you know, making AI agents accessible for you. And he talked about trying to kind of, instead of seeing AI as a threat, see it as a way to, uh, you know, maybe 10x yourself, 10x what what you're doing and how, what are the yep. things you're, you maybe repeat over and over again every day that maybe you can then allow AI to help do those kind of repetitious things for you much, much faster. Oh, yeah. The way I see AI and, and really the way I saw the iPhone in, in similar ways is that it's a new technology, um, a new tool that we have that we can use to innovate on top of by grabbing a bunch of products and services that we've used in the past uh, using other tools and then just trying to figure out a way to adapt them to the new tool. So with, uh, for example, the notepad, the iPhone comes around, people make a note app that lets you have all the same features that a notepad would have. And that's just repurposing a thing that we know people love to do with the new tool that they have. I think in the same way, it's looking at AI and looking at ChatGPT and saying like, what is the repurposing or the rebuilding of some of the most common things that humans like to do with the new tool of AI uh, being the infrastructure that helps uh, support that. So that that to me feels like the uh, the way to uncover the next innovative products um, to come with all this AI stuff. Yeah. So speaking of like innovation, and you know, we talk, we think about it. We're talking in this in the context of both of us being born and raised and living in the United States of America, perhaps you know the most innovative place in the world at any time, right? Uh, but you caught the attention of the Latin American media as a, as a <laughs> teenager. And I think in the same idea that uh, they looked to you as somebody who was part of a family who, you know, basically took on the opportunities of the American dream and made something of himself. So as a teenager, you were invited to speak at a lot of conferences, including in Latin America, uh, where you were seen as the symbol of opportunity in the American dream. So you said in the book here, uh, once you were up there at one of these conferences, I think it was in Peru or Bolivia, and you said, I was standing up there because despite all my insecurities and shortcomings, I'd never let my failures stop me from building things that change the world. So what can you say about the role of failing? I think... I think it's important to fail. I think everybody who's afraid of failure is stopping themselves from succeeding without realizing it. Um, it. It's incredibly frustrating when I see people who have this drive to succeed and want to have an impact on the world. And they look at their failures or even imagine potential failures as like the thing that stops them from trying again or from actually doing the thing that ends up resulting in the success. Like we have a lot, a lot more, we have a lot more uh, agency to define our future than I think we tend to believe we have. And I think the most successful people in the world are aware of the agency that they have, or they're naively unaware of the lack of control that they have over the world. And that naiveness around their lack of control gives them this um, delusion of control that actually leads to them succeeding. So whether or not we have control over the world and how things go and how our future goes, 
the the idea that one has control over it, I think, correlates with the successes uh, uh, that they can have. And and those people who think of failure as something that's inevitable or that they're afraid of hitting, um, it, it, they're wasting their time. And and I do think it's important to fail, and I think it happens constantly. Um, and I don't know what the right way is of handling failure, but the way that I tend to handle it is not so much. And, you know, there are people who will say, oh, to handle failure means um, means to to think about it and understand why you failed and learn from it. Uh, for me, I, I never structured it that way. Um, it, to me, that feels very like, you know, like organized and I'm kind of a mess. So so my failure approach is, is actually very different. It's, um, but similar in other ways. Um, it's basically that I go into something and when I fail, I, I just assume that that's part of the, my process of building. And I say, oh, no, th this one failed because this, this, and that. And I understand that. And I'm like, oh, it's part of the work. And so the failure to me never feels like a failure. It just feels like... Um, like it's just another uh, extension on the plan to success. Um, and I would have always encountered it regardless of what I would have done because there is no world where I would have succeeded without achieving that failure. So to me, success is like maybe a five-year timeline and everything that happens in between that people would call failures, I just call as like steps towards that five-year success. And so some people might look at that five-year timeline and say, well, Every year I had a plan every year and I failed every year. And then that fifth year I succeeded. I don't look at it that way. I look at it like I have five years and I plan to succeed in the five years. And through those five years, I have to learn all these things. And the word failure never crosses my mind through it. Yeah, that's great. Great answer. Um, well, Michael, on, on another note here, uh, when it comes to getting into creating apps and learning how to code, uh, you said here in the book, coding changes so fast if you want to learn to code, let the internet be your guide. Uh, you also decided not to go to college. Yeah. And it seems you barely got through high school, to be honest yeah. with you. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of a mess. Uh, high school was a mess. Uh, that's, yeah. It was mostly my fault, but yeah. <laughs> so in this day and age, is all the education we need on the internet? Uh, what can you tell a young person listening about the, the role that formal education plays and self-education uh, might play in their life? I, I think... I think formal education is very important. While I do think that for coding, for example, things change so fast that you really do kind of need um, to use the internet um, as a guide for the latest stuff because by the time the new update to Swift comes out, uh, that changes the way that the iOS programming language uh, handles a handful of different things, um, the college courses won't be able to adapt to that. At the same time, like, if someone wants to learn some foundational coding principles and understand how the structures of the programming languages work um, at the very, very like basic level, then the only way you can really go about that is finding courses online that teach you that well or going to the colleges that can teach you it. The thing that the internet does really well in terms of education and learning is it's the place where you can test your theories and and like prove them or disprove them. So any type of learning that can be done by rediscovering something, meaning sciences or computers and so on, 
can be done using the internet without, you know, any other type of education. Now, will it be faster than learning in a college? Probably not. If you go into college, they'll probably structure it in a way that lets you learn it in the most efficient, you know, possible way. But everybody's different. And some people prefer to learn by sitting in a library and looking through books and discovering the things as they go, asking themselves questions like, why is this working this way? Why is this working that way? And using those questions to guide their next thing that they learn. For me, that's how I did it. And it worked the best. And the internet obviously helps me do that much faster than having to sit in the library. Um, but now with AI, it kind of speeds that up in, in a somewhat odd way uh, where you have both, you know, 10x faster retrieval of data, but I would argue 100x less accurate uh, information that you received than you did, uh, you know, a few years ago. Uh, the easier it is to fabricate and the easier it is for AI to hallucinate. Um, and the more information density and, and all the rest of it, the harder it is to discern the valuable information from the not so valuable. Um, and that's where really the testing approach that scientists and mathematicians use to like, you know, come up with a theory, test the thing, see if it works and iterate is going to come in handy because there's going to be so much information and so many different tutorials and guides for how to build things that the only way that you can discern what's valuable or not from the internet is by trying it yourself and seeing if it works. Um, everything else, history, news, media, whatever, that stuff that can't be rediscovered, that just is, it, I'm afraid to say the AI is just not making that part any easier these days. So if you want to learn about history and you want to learn about what's going on in the world, I just don't think that the internet is as reliable as it used to be. Yeah. Amen. Well, good, good to that. Good to hear all that. Um, well, so, so Michael, speaking of the internet, uh, you've worked at some of the largest companies that, that power so many places we go on the internet. You've worked at Facebook and Google while at Facebook, you were part of the team that developed Instagram stories. Can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, that pro how that process started and why it was ultimately successful? <laughs> Well, it was a total mess. I, I mean, people like to think that Facebook and Google, they're all these very, very, you know, rigid companies that have everything in order and they understand exactly what they're doing and they have all the data and the science and the smartest people. But like, at the end of the day, these companies are just collections of people. Uh, so like even at Facebook, it, the process of, of trying to push for a stories product within the company was very much me just getting up on a stage inside of one of the conference rooms grabbing a microphone and asking one of my coworkers to film it and upload it to the internal Facebook website uh, for all the employees to watch. And so I would just get up on a little stage, a podium in a conference room once a month at Facebook, and I would just run through all the data and all the analysis of why Facebook and Instagram are not going to succeed in the long term if they don't adapt some type of ephemeral sharing uh, option and in this case stories, right? And, and how to make it so that users can post stuff that disappears and the importance of this and the effects of the camera roll and the whole system. And I loved doing this because uh, it was the only way me as a, what, at that point, 18, 19 year old could get the attention of the company. I realized I could convince Zuckerberg or Chris Cox or any of the other executives if I met with them, but ultimately companies and especially larger ones don't mobilize and build products 
by just getting a handful of people on board, no matter where they are in position and leadership. You really need to get the entire company motivated. And so while I certainly did work with Zuckerberg and with Chris Cox and the executive team to figure out the details of the order and, you know, how do we build out stories? Which ones do we ship first and so on? Like the biggest impact that I felt I had on the company was not in working with Zuckerberg, but rather it was in working on working with the rest of the company, the designers, the product managers, and so on, and helping kind of spread understanding around um, the data that we had and the way in which an ephemeral social networking feature like stories could impact the trajectory of the company and making the rest of the company aware of, of, of all that stuff and working with them on these videos and the comments that we would receive on all of the content that we post. It was the weirdest and also the most um, effective way I felt uh, of getting the entire company to reshift its thinking on Snapchat and teenagers as a whole. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because you were one of the youngest people to ever work at Facebook, especially at the time. And, um, you know, you mentioned in the book that was both your biggest strength and your biggest weakness. It's really, yeah. as I'm reading your book and listening to you talk just now, I'm thinking to myself, how does an 18 or 19 year old figure out what you just said that who you needed to get on board? I mean, that just seems like something it takes most people maybe never in their career to figure out, but sometimes in their 30s or 40s or deep in their career to figure out how to persuade, influence others within the community or within the organization. Um, and, and you seem to kind of figure this out at 18, 19 years old. You know, maybe it took a little time, but still to, to be able to do that and, and manage that. Uh, but, but also it seemed to me like at that time, Snapchat was really big, especially for people your age at the time, and not so much for people you know my age or Zuckerberg's age or somebody who maybe who started um, Facebook, like not seeing the importance of this. But how did you, you kind of use your youth as both a strength, but also what were some of the weaknesses in terms of coming into the company? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, there's so many weaknesses. Uh, the biggest weakness by far, lack of self-awareness, lack of... Um, ability to understand um, how I come off. When you're 19, when you're 20, you, you, you talk and you try to convince people and you're, you're more certain of your ideas than you should be and so on. And, and you know, you look back at videos or photos or even things you write in, in those ages and you think, oh my gosh, like how unaware of the world uh, I was, right? Um, and, and then also I surprised myself when I look at those and I say, how could anyone at Facebook deal with me when they, when I, cause I, I looked insufferable. When you look at those videos, I'm like, I sound insufferable. And, and, you know, a lot of my coworkers will tell me, they'll be like, oh yeah, well, you know, you were super young, but, and you were very like, you know, very much 20, very much 19. Uh, but there was a lot of insight to what you were saying and, and we thought it was valuable. And, and, and so I, the way I see it is like, I understood at that point that I had a set of weaknesses, but I knew that the weaknesses that I had weren't limiting me from being able to have the kind of impact I wanted. And so I almost like didn't worry about them. And it, it sounds crazy. And, and really what it sounds like is I relied on my youth to excuse my youth for allowing me to kind of build out, right? So I, I, the fact I was 18 allowed me to be 18. And the fact that the company knew I was 18 allowed me to have 
my lack of awareness um, as a weakness while I was able to then use the strengths that I had to my advantage. And so, uh, frankly, if there was not the context of me being 19, I don't think I would have been able to convince anybody of anything I was doing. Um, and, and yeah, that combination was important. I, I do also think, though, that from a very young age, my parents taught me, especially my mom, uh, taught me how to observe people. Um, she, she's always been in, incredibly intelligent in my view. I, smart, way smarter than me. Um, and, and I think when I was young, she always taught me like, hey, look, look at how this is. Look at how that person talked to you. Look at how this person said that. Look at the facial gestures. This is why I think they said this. This is why I think they said that. Helping me really understand uh, people. Um, my dad was more on the uh, technical side of intelligence, I would say. And so for him, he, he wasn't very, so he didn't care about the social communication side. He was like, I don't care. I'm going to speak my mind and whatever. Um, and my mom was very much on the other end of it. So for me, like learning a little bit of the value that my mom had to offer from how do you communicate with people? But then also from my dad's side of like, okay, how do you piece this together into a product that works? I think for me, like that mix kind of helped me gain a little bit of that skill when I was like 18 or 19. Um, uh, albeit still completely unaware of myself and, and, you know, half of the things that I was trying to say or do embarrassing, uh, completely embarrassing, but excusable given that I was 19. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great that, you know, so many maybe within Facebook also had that, uh, gave you a little bit of grace maybe for being your right. age, but also, you know, had that, Hey, we can learn something. I mean, if this is a, they were they were losing the next generation of users, uh, especially the time period Facebook was created. So uh, very interesting. And, um, you know, now obviously TikTok's really strong um, <laughs> and all these sorts of things are happening. I've got a couple. Uh, so a couple of questions though to, to get to on, on this space. First of all, since we uh, were talking about Facebook, uh, you mentioned the book that you work very closely at times with Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, including introducing him to many of the Snapchat features by Snapchatting yeah. with him, yeah. um, which uh, was probably pretty cool. But uh, what was it like to work with him, Snapchat with him? What do you think people uh, maybe might be surprised by? He is a lot more humble um, than most people might think. Um, and, and maybe not in like the sense of like he, he doesn't humble his words. He's humble in mindset. Like his approach to trying to understand how to compete with Snapchat involved him assuming that some random 19 year old at his company might have some insight that he doesn't have. Like that, that's like silly. Like if I was him, I would have been like, oh, 19 year old, I'm not going to listen to that kid. He doesn't know, you know, and like, and like, yeah, half of the things I was saying were garbage, but maybe there was a couple of things that were interesting and useful from what, from what I was saying that he picked up on and. And that's, I think, the part that was most interesting about him. He, while he could arguably convince himself that he's one of the most capable and successful and intelligent people when it comes to social psychology, he also didn't do that to himself. He told himself that he had a limited perspective. He reminded himself that without listening to other people, he could eventually lose out on some of the product opportunities that he wanted to jump into. And that to me feels like the opposite of what a stereotypical CEO of a big corporation would do. Um, 
and and frankly, I, I think it was very smart um, and also helped me. But more importantly, I think uh, is the secret to how he's been able to compete with Snapchat and TikTok and Twitter and all the rest of it is he he knows his company is not as solid as other people might think it is. He knows it's a house of cards. He knows the moment something else comes out that's cooler or easier to use or more innovative that people will just leave their app and go to the new one. And so given how fragile his business is, he has this mindset of always looking towards the next thing with the assumption that he might not know anything about it and has so much more to learn from it. Um, that, that ability that he had, I think, is, is why TikTok and the rest of it is so successful. There's other companies out there. I'm not going to name names, but there are other companies that will lock down to their original like mission and the original product that they built. And they'll say, this is what makes us us. And we will never, you know, we will never just go and compete in some space that's not related to what we did. And we will never change, you know, from this point. And, and they're very hard on that. And, and those companies that are very prideful of what they built, I think a lot of times miss out on opportunities uh, of innovation when the public or when the market changes, because the pride that they have in who they were uh, is so strong that it prevents them from seeing what's right in front of them. Yeah. You know, after interviewing and interacting with so many entrepreneurs, one of the top uh, characteristics I, I have singled out is that people... Most, most entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs have a very curious and creative mindset, but I've come to understand even more recently that that is only built on humility. You, in order to be curious, you have to be humble enough to know that you don't know everything and that there's more to discover. And yes. so it sounds to me like somebody like a Mark Zuckerberg that you just described, he knows that, he's aware of that. He's also aware you know, of the kind of capitalist economy we live in, right? The free market that people can choose new things. And um, he's constantly, you know, obviously they acquired Instagram, they acquired WhatsApp. Uh, now they're, they're, their company is Meta, right? And they're looking at all the AI stuff in the future, uh, all the um, virtual reality things, right? Uh, many, many other things. So I think uh, to be able to, to, be, to be aware of, of the broader economy, but also, hey, I don't know everything. Maybe this young person who's probably, you know, close to 15, 20 years younger than me, uh, another generation could could teach me something about why young people his age aren't getting on Facebook like like older folks are. Um, so that's great. So um, speaking of Instagram, uh, there, there, we probably have some people listening, watching. You are one of the uh, people who are on the team of creating Instagram stories, um, not Instagram itself. Right. But I mean, how nah. do you think? But you understand. I think you understand Instagram. What's the biggest advice you can give to content creators uh, or businesses <laughs> about using Instagram uh, to reach people today? Well, okay. Today, that's a good question. T today, I think things have changed a little bit. Um, stories originally was, a, was intended to be built across all of the apps. So it was not just for Instagram. It was for Facebook, for Messenger, for WhatsApp, and for Instagram. And WhatsApp, we actually felt, was the, the biggest opportunity uh, beyond Instagram. And, and that, that rollout, I would argue, is probably not as successful as the one from Instagram stories for a number of reasons, but, um, but we originally tried to, to pitch stories as a cross platform feature to add it to everything. 
um, the Instagram one took off the most. And so I think when people think of stories, they think of Instagram these days. Um, but, but there was a lot of work and a lot of questions around how much time should be invested in Facebook versus Instagram or WhatsApp for building out stories, which was interesting. Um, but, but today to, to answer your question, um, I think social media in general has pivoted away from social connections between close friends and real life connections and towards what I would call the TV 2.0, right? This mm. is like a new television era where instead of having TV channels, you have these apps and these apps, instead of having a singular programming schedule, have a bunch of different algorithms that give you different feeds and notifications and personalization. And so people now watch these TV apps or TV channels um, instead of watching their traditional television. And, and what that means is that as content creators, it is not like you are creating content um, for friends or for family members, but now content creation is about competing at the level of a television show in the 80s or 90s trying to convince a producer on a television network to let you, you know, on or, or however that exactly worked. And so that, that really is the space today. Um, and, and with that mindset, with that understanding that it is that type of market, now you're not looking at how do you make the best content and just purely that you're looking at how do I partner with certain brands, which media companies, because that's what they are now, media companies, right? Like which media companies would prefer to have my content on it? Um, what type of content should I be creating for those media companies so that those media companies and the producers, their algorithms, uh, decide to highlight my content further? Um, and and how, uh, how do I work with different brands and how does working with those brands help distribute the content that I'm trying to share. And so really thinking of it as a business, not as a social place to connect with your friends, it is, I think, much more realistic to the landscape that the, the social media apps are today. They are not apps where people share what they're up to anymore. Um, and, and so because of that, I think, I think a lot of companies these days are, are really going into it uh, with that mindset, winning, and then a lot of classical content creators are kind of confused or a little bit feeling a little bit out of place because the the landscape that they're in and the algorithms and the companies that they're working with have the same names as the ones that they used to post on but they are entirely different animals these days and um and i would i would really try to think about that and realize we are in a totally different world and all the rules and all the things that we know about creating content on social media from the 2000s needs to be left there, even in the early, uh, you know, 2010s, because it is, it's just not applicable anymore. Um, in terms of what is, I would say, understanding that these media companies are trying to compete for time. And so they're trying to get more people to watch their TV channel instead of another, and then trying to understand what's the angle of that media channel, right? What's the angle of X versus what's the angle of threads? What type of content are they trying to share? And what type of message resonates with the audiences of those? So really thinking of it that way, I think, is, um, is the way to go. And in terms of stories, 
stories for, for media purposes are kind of dying down. And I would say reels and TikTok like format is growing. Um, and so I would look more towards that lens. Um, stories in general, I do think is valuable. Um, but really when you're looking at it from content creation, I think you, you'd lean more towards the reels and TikTok approach, given that the content doesn't disappear and disappearing content was really just a feature to help people share with their friends and something that's just not a priority for these companies anymore. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. So in the time that you, you helped create stories, you know, what, eight, seven, eight years ago, yeah. um, things have radically changed where they're becoming oh, yeah. less relevant, uh, than, than they were. Um, That's okay. Right. So speaking of, so you, uh, you, you worked at both Facebook and Google. Um, can you con compare, contrast the different philosophies of how they work internally? Oh, it's, as much it's as you'd like to say. It's, yeah. Yeah. It, it's great because it, what's, I think is the most interesting bit of it is that it's not too complicated. Um, it, it's rather simple. Um, Facebook's philosophy within the company was to connect the people within it as easily as possible so that they could share information and thoughts on product and innovation, and then just all work with each other to come up with the best ideas that they can. So naturally, Facebook's entire philosophy around how to work revolved around the entire premise of the product that they built. Google's entire philosophy of how to work involved providing people with an internal index that allowed them to search for anything that they needed to find around any piece of data or information that Google had available so that people could construct the products and work with the teams on those things. Obviously, Google building its entire team structures and company workflows around the product that they built, which is a search engine. So frankly, I wish it were more complicated, but the answer in terms of the differences is really around the product that made them successful. And it's, it's funny because I would think that, you know, a company once it succeeds realizes that their product is just one of many, and therefore the workplace doesn't need to reflect exactly the product that they built. But then again, that's not what happens. And, and, and these companies do just reflect the core of the product that they built from the start. Um, everything else is kind of the same. You know, you have your ping pong tables and the coffee machines and the slides and the buses and the sushi and the burritos and the whatever, you know, like that stuff is the same. Uh, but, um, but in terms of the differences, yes, I, I think Facebook is more about connecting with each other. Um, and Google was more about indexing and, um, and finding um, the information that you needed via those, um, via those search engines that they offered internally. So you were coming from Miami at the time, an outsider to yeah. Silicon Valley. Uh, so yeah. I want to ask a couple <laughs> part question here. First, yeah. you mentioned in the book that um, uh, like in many places in Silicon Valley, including these companies, uh, there was a very small minority of Latinos who worked in those companies, uh, very huge companies in Silicon Valley. And you mentioned in the book um, that education and outreach to bring more diversity into tech is badly needed. Um, so again, you were coming in as a as a, a, a Latino, an immigrant of of of, of uh, people from Latin America. You obviously you also speak fluently in Spanish as well, right? Um, yep. So how kind of similar to the age question? You were young as a little bit outsider. How was the similarity as a Latino coming in? And what what do you think uh, you know these companies maybe are doing or should be doing more of uh, bringing more Latinos 
especially yeah, with I the mean, U.S. I, yeah. becoming more Hispanic, exactly right? more Hispanic yeah. over time. I think it's so important to understand the demographics of the people in the country that you're trying to market to. I think that's one of the things that I, I tried to explain to others, you know, um, who are looking to apply to these companies, thinking, "Oh, I'll never get in. Like they don't want me. They only want people from the U.S." and and then, you know, trying to explain like, no, like if Facebook is going to be a global product, it needs to have a global workforce of product managers that can understand the global needs of the global product. Like, like you can't build a product for Malaysia if you don't have anyone at your company that lives or is from Malaysia or understands anything about Malaysia. Like uh, in the same way, you can't do it for Peru. You can't do it for uh, Argentina. You can't do it for Mexico. You can't do it for the U.S. So. Uh, definitely there's a need for it. I, I think the challenge lately for me is like, and not even lately, like I think since the beginning, I've always been a little frustrated by the approach, which is that like one thing is appearances. Like one thing is trying to find a way to make companies like, you know, Facebook or Google look like they're diverse, look like they have achieved, you know, this this diversity in their workforce. And I think a lot of times you'll find like, um, you know, they'll, they'll hire people because they come from a background, but maybe don't necessarily have, um, the skill set to do the job. And I remember always being worried, uh, that part of the reason why I was hired was because, oh, I was, you know, my parents are from Peru. I, I, I checked the box. Is that really it or whatever? And that fear of like, not knowing if I'm there for, for my merit or not. Or am I there as like a media play? Am I there as what? You know, like always scared of that uh, and, and always doubting whether or not I should have been there um, was was a bit scary. And, and I think, frankly, like what I want to see and what I've always wanted to see was that the smartest and most capable person that they hire happened to be someone from, you know, Chile or happened to be someone from Mexico, happened to be someone from uh, Bolivia, uh, and, and that, it, you know, they didn't even have to think about, you know, where they came from. It was just, this person is just the one that they needed. And it just so happened that they came there. And, and the reality is like, okay, well, how do you get there, right? How do you get to the point where you can actually do that? And, and to me, the strongest, the strongest thing you can do is to invest in those communities from the earliest time that you possibly can not try and pick out from the college those who survived, but rather just go to the preschool level, go to the kindergarten level, go to the youngest level you can across each of these communities in the various countries where you want to see the most talented people shine through and invest in those communities. But there's a problem with that solution, which is they won't see an outcome that makes them look good for 20 years. So like, you know, so there's a, there's a bit of an issue with the return uh, being a little bit of a delayed gratification for the company's success. And so I feel like had, you know, a lot of these companies started doing that 20 years ago, maybe today we'd have so many more brilliant people that could be capable of doing the job and also have the background and experience and like personal stories and culture that can integrate with that you know, education that they receive to then provide the products that truly resonate and lift that community up, whichever it may be. Um, and so I'm hopeful that, you know, in the coming years, that stuff starts to grow because I don't know, I see that as a huge opportunity. It excites me. 
And also, I think it's the right solution. It's the just solution to make it so that regardless of where you are in the world, or even in the US, that you're, you're able to have the best chance, the best opportunity at success. Um, and for me, I, I don't know. I, that's, that's my hope. <laughs> yeah, well, it seemed like you did have a couple experiences that you pointed out in the book that you went out personally to some different uh, challenging communities of uh, Latinos, maybe in, in different areas. Um, and we're trying to do some education and, and influence, at least on the parents and the teachers. And, and so I think that's great. And personally, I think that would make Facebook or another organization look good, to be honest with you, philanthropically to say, hey, we're out here in the community helping helping people because we understand people in some of these challenging areas uh, don't uh, don't quite you know have these kind of resources. Let's help them get them. And here's the new future. By the way, the one of the authors I met at the Miami Book Fair is a guy named Harold Hughes, and he's an entrepreneur. And he has a book because he was one element of his job is working in blockchain technology. And his kid was like, "Hey, Dad, how do I explain what you know you do? Like my friend's father is a firefighter. Everybody gets that. I don't know what you do." So he actually said, I'm going to write a book. So he wrote a book called A Kid's Book About Blockchain. So I thought it was pretty <laughs> funny. But I think those are the kind of things that are needed, right? To kind of like yeah. help young people to understand these kind of careers that are available. So you, you, shifting gears here, you were in Silicon Valley. Um, you are from Miami. A lot of Silicon Valley people <laughs> have moved to Miami. Um, That's where right. I'm, I'm happy to head up the Economic Club of Miami now. So I see a lot of these people in the tech and finance and a lot of new people in the last few years, especially since 2020. Um, but you also split time in New York and Connecticut. Yep. Um, so what would you say about the role that S Silicon Valley is now? And maybe if you want to talk about your original hometown, Miami, uh, where Miami might fit into that as well. Yeah. Um, I think Silicon Valley is more so a, culture slash um, group of people across the world. And it's always been, I think uh, Silicon Valley, um, as it's referred to the location in California, south of San Francisco, I think was a physical requirement at a time uh, where everyone needed to be there in order to work on the innovative products. Um, but frankly, Silicon Valley was never just in San Francisco. I think I, I think to, you know, back to when I first started at these companies and I'd ask people where they were from and nobody was from San Francisco. No one was from Silicon Valley. Everyone was from somewhere else. And so it really was just a bunch of people who had a very similar mindset, interesting passions uh, that aligned with each other that all decided to collectively meet up in San Francisco. And, and today, uh, you know, after COVID and after all the technology that we now have with remote work and so on, these groups have grown so quickly and these passions that people have in the interest in the space has grown so much that just being in Silicon Valley is not um, required anymore. You can have groups of people in Miami, you can have groups of people in New York, um, you can have groups of people even in South America and Peru um, that all share that Silicon Valley mindset and create their own little Silicon Valley over there. Um, and so I think that's that's one of the biggest things that's changed. Um, in particular with Miami, though, I think there's a huge opportunity just based on the shifts that we're seeing in the country overall. We talked about this earlier, but like, yeah, the amount of Hispanics in the U.S. continues to grow. Um, the influence of Latin American culture in the U.S. is growing, but also Miami um, is such a key geographic 
location for Latin America and the U.S. in terms of partnerships in the future that, you know, ignoring, you know, just, you know, not to mention the growth of Latin uh, culture and Hispanic culture in the U.S., Latin America as a whole is becoming so much stronger and so much more of a, a, of a growing economy and power in the world that having Miami be that, um, that hub that connects these two different cultures and worlds is, is becoming more and more, um, uh, I would say valuable to, um, to the communities. And, and given that that's the case, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, it's very exciting. It's very fun having grown up in a city that frankly, I never thought was going to be a part of Silicon Valley as a kid. I thought I had to live in California to be a part of it. And seeing that completely change and turn into something where, uh, where Miami is now, you know, one of the biggest uh, tech hubs in the U.S. is, it's just exciting and it's fun. It makes me feel great, but I think it also makes sense as a whole in terms of uh, what what do you call it? Um, the opportunities that uh, Latinos are going to be able to have in uh, immersing themselves in in tech as a whole. Yeah, you know, I, I in recent years, I spent a lot of time in Latin America, Guatemala, Colombia, Argentina, places, and I like to tell my friends there now, Miami is now the capital of Latin America. So, uh, but it's, it, you're right, it's kind of like this place where it's a great uh, connector between the United States and, and Latin America. Um, so uh, last couple questions here for you, Michael, if you got some time. Um, yeah. So I, in the book, uh, you have a chapter on serendipity, which I love. Because it's, I think it's a great topic, especially as we think about entrepreneurs and we think about success. You said here that some people think serendipity is the same as luck or coincidence, but it's better because you can actually bring it to yourself proactively. So first of all, can you explain to our audience a little bit about what serendipity means to you and how we can each bring it to ourselves proactively? Of course. Um, you know, um, being lucky, it... It's, it's funny because like a lot of people think, oh, you know, being lucky is completely out of your control. You can't, you can't really be lucky all the time. And some people are just more lucky than others. And if I don't have luck, then it's just because I got unlucky and, and there's nothing I can do. And it's, yeah, the same mindset that we talked about earlier about this general lack of control and thinking about how, how little control I have in my life and kind of rebranding that as serendipity is, is in that same, I guess, framing that I talked about around like, just either believing in an illusion of control or realizing that you have control, regardless of which it is, having that in control mindset um, for me was valuable. And so in, in the way that serendipity works for me, is like, I, I have many examples of products that have succeeded because they were at the right, the right time in the right place. But they also required 90% of like effort from all these people who were working tens and tens of hours every day at products and ideas that weren't at the right time, the right place. And by throwing all of those chances at it every day, there came the day that it was the right time, the right place, and they struck luck, right? And so it's like, I, I have... The, the perfect analogy, I guess, for me, and it's probably a terrible analogy for most people, but I love it, is like I use a dartboard as a concept. And with that dartboard, um, there's, a, there's a chance that I can hit the center of it blindfolded. Um, and there's a chance that I don't. If I'm blindfolded, it's really hard to do. If 
but I could try. And if I get lucky, I could hit it. But if I stand in front of the dartboard blindfolded and I don't throw any darts, and then I complain about not being lucky to hit it, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, why would I, you know, like, why would I end up getting lucky enough to hit the dartboard? I didn't even throw anything at it. So really, I think serendipity is about grabbing a whole bag of darts and putting on the blindfold and just throwing at the dartboard every single day. And, and you know, and it's not just throwing at the dartboard and seeing what sticks, but rather throwing at the dartboard, trying to listen with your ears to see, did it hit the board? Did it hit the wall? Where did it fall? And trying to kind of guesstimate how to change, you know, the throw you do on the next round. And every time you do that, you got a little bit better. And you're still going to need some kind of luck. But if you add up enough attempts and you mix that with some of the clues that you can get, you get really close to being in control. And if you just tell yourself that you have that ability, I think, at least for me, if you believe that you have that ability, whether or not it's real, it, it has lent to, you know, to the uh, realization of some of the goals that I've had. I love that analogy. And I'm going to add one more thing to it. As you're throwing on that dartboard, it might be helpful if maybe there was somebody next to you that was yeah. telling you, hey, go a little more to the right, go a little more That's to the left, right. like a coach or a mentor, right? Or, or a collaborator, right? So That's those are right. some things that can help us along our journey as well. So That's uh, great right. thing. Last, uh, last two questions here. First, uh, can you tell us what you're up to now? I mean, you're, yes. you're, you're, I'd love, I'd love to hear what you, what you've been up to. Oh, I am so excited uh, for some of the things I'm, I'm trying to launch. Um, I've been working um, on a couple of products uh, recently, uh, one of them being a productivity tool. I think it's important for people to be productive. Frankly, I think like a lot of people my age um, struggle with productivity um, and struggle with trying to get things done. Um, I just don't think any pro like productivity tools today are really helping people who aren't productive. I think every tool that's out there today is helping people who love to be structured and love to take down notes and love to use their calendar and helping them just like have the tool to do that. But there's not a lot of apps out there or features or products that help people be productive who aren't naturally productive um, and who aren't naturally motivated to structure their days. Um, so that to me is one that's really fun. Um, it's also a little social, which I love. Um, and it, it kind of, it's kind of a, a weird attempt. If I were to describe it using the dartboard analogy, this app to me is like grabbing, like grabbing the dart and shooting it up into the sky with a fan and trying to do some weird maneuver to hit the dartboard and just seeing if that works. It's the weirdest, I, I think, uh, throw at the dartboard I've done, but, um, I think it'll be kind of fun. And then, and then the other thing that I've been working on is I've been thinking a lot about the dating space and how to help people connect with new, um, uh, what do you call it? With new people that they haven't met, uh, before, just because I think the cold space is kind of broken right now, there's opportunity for improving it. Um, and been testing a couple of ideas out there. Um, and, uh, talking to a few people in the industry, people who work at the match group and so on. And, um, people work at Bumble, trying to get a sense of what they're doing there. So that, that's kind of fun. And, and then lastly, I think there's an opportunity to build on what ChatGPT built and created. I think there's an opportunity to like create something 
that uses the technology of language models and the AI stuff, but maybe isn't a chat interface. I think the chat interface is really cool, but I think there may be a different way to interact with AI um, that, I don't know, that is yet to be explored. And I can't wait to launch it. That's, that's the one I'm most excited about. Um, yeah, so, so that's, a, that's what I've been working on now. Um, I may have a couple more trips uh, planned uh, to Peru and Bolivia in the coming year. And, you know, besides that, uh, I don't know, depending on how these things go, maybe there's a second book. <laughs> great. Well, we look forward to the second book. And for those that haven't been paying attention yet, you know, Michael wrote this great book called App Kid, uh, How a Child of Immigrants grabbed a piece of the American dream. It's available on Amazon and anywhere else you probably get books. Uh, so, um, Michael, la one of the last things I wanted to ask you about here is, first of all, I thought it was ironic that uh, you said a lot of young people your age are, aren't structured uh, or, or organized. Maybe it's because you distracted everybody with Instagram stories, uh, <laughs> you know, and all these other gaming apps. So now you're trying to say, okay, now we're trying to undistract you again and get you, get you productive. Uh, yeah. No. Build the product and then build the solution, right? No. Yeah, build the problem exactly. and then build the solution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but one of the things that I've personally seen, and I've been tr trying to articulate a little bit more, you know, I, with my Fearless Journeys community and, and even with this podcast, what I really try to help people do is, is build an entrepreneur mindset. But as I start, especially start spending more time in Latin America, uh, seeing and interacting with so many communities in Miami and all across the country, um, you know, what, what I've discovered is the, really what people need is the immigrant mindset, right? Uh, the immigrant mindset of, first of all, it's people who've taken risk sometimes to come from places. Um, they've, they've, they've had some faith in, in taking a little bit of a leap of faith on that journey. Um, but they're also really, a lot of immigrants have a really hard work ethic, uh, and they're willing to kind of do the work and and come to a place uh, and and really overcome any kind of fears that took them to get there. Um, so, what could you, what kind of parallels that can you draw from the entrepreneur mindset and maybe this immigrant mindset? I, I think they're very similar. I think it, it's you know it's this. For me, it seems like both both an immigrant and an entrepreneur need to think about how to create a life in a world that they don't yet know um, the outcome of. I, I think that uh, that unknown that an immigrant jumps into is that same unknown that an entrepreneur might jump into. I think um, a lot about um, how immigrants uh, and second generation immigrants in particular tend to do the best in the U.S., uh, frankly, um, and, and the weird, you know, trying to understand that and doing studies to try and understand, like, why is it that this second generation from immigrants that come into the U.S. Uh, tend to perform so well in school, tend to perform so well in college um, and, and even in, in their careers? Um, and I, I think it comes from the idea that an immigrant comes to the U.S., doesn't understand how things work, builds the life that they possibly can. The U.S. gives them the opportunities that they can to build a life far beyond what they could gives their child that life. That child then grows up, learns the struggle and the hard work that it took that parent to get the things that they have and uses that understanding to go on and build a stable and strong career. Maybe at that point, by the second generation, the third one is just used to it and doesn't understand that and then loses it. But that, that tends to be, I think, a, a common theme that we see there. I, I, I think in terms of entrepreneurs in general, 
the way that they can look at this is is really like and 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 you talk about like how to motivate them how to get them to realize their potential is like don't they like they think about it like i just want to tell them like don't think about like the failure don't think about the oh but i don't think i can do it don't think about how hard it's going to be don't think about that stuff because it's just not useful like think about all of those challenges as the fun bits the parts that you're going to learn from to succeed and i think maybe the biggest lesson is delayed gratification like get excited about the thing that's going to happen 5 years from now don't get excited about tomorrow and don't look for gratification in the everyday because the entrepreneurial path is definitely not one where it's success every day um it's one where you get success over a long enough time horizon so if you if you can learn to think in years and not in days you're better off i i think a, a good example of this and this is super corny but like uh, i i thought about this recently is like there are people who spend a lot of time worrying about the clock and looking at the clock when they should spend more time looking at the calendar as a whole uh super cheesy i i know but like uh but i still think it's good it's like you know it, don't look at how much time you have left in the day to do what you want to do look at the whole calendar and plan out what you want to achieve by then and then again you know when you do that you are more relaxed in the day to day um because you know, there's not a pressure of getting it done in 24 hours so i i don't know i that that's my that's my advice that's my thought on it um and then i also just think in general like don't overthink it is like I I hate to hear that when people tell me it but I I think it's also true like don't overthink it just Nike's you know motto of just do it is cheesy and very accurate so <laughs> yeah and also look I think also when you're talking about calendar and timeline somebody might be watching or listening to this and see wow there's this really successful 27 year old I'm 27 or I'm 30 or whatever and I haven't had his kind of success um every, you know everybody's timeline is different right and uh, and yeah, everybody's the, on a different the past journey. is the what do you call it? the past is the past it's already happened it's not happening again so while that happened to me in the past and i did all those things in the past well there's just as much chance that this 27 or 30 year old may have more success in the future from that point onward than i will have from this point onward it's totally possible it's just a question of who's going to work who's going to do the things how are you going to push yourself because what's happened in the past is already done and the world is changing so quickly that at this point like every day is like a fresh start in terms of careers and i i think it's a huge opportunity for people to look at and get excited about it means everyone's really got a more equal opportunity than ever before well i love kind of landing the playing there uh that every day is a is a fresh start and i think that's great uh michael uh as we finish this out how can people uh follow you connect with you learn from you they can follow me on twitter or or X I guess it's called Instagram, Facebook, you know, all the other social media apps um at Michael Saman um and I'm happy to chat about any product ideas or things you guys are working on. Yeah, always always glad to help out. Great. Well, thank you so much Michael for being an amazing agent of innovation, uh somebody that we can learn from and uh follow some great examples. And again, I encourage everybody to pick up his book App Kid uh available in all the uh, all the places you buy books. So thank you Michael again for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. No, thank you so much for having me. It was great.